ready to keep you company wherever you are. Carte Blanche, the podcast, brings you immersive, hard-hitting stories anytime, anywhere, every week. Winter is in our rearview mirror and we're starting off September with another jam-packed episode of The Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. Coming up in today's show. A devastating fire in Johannesburg leaves over 70 people dead, but could it have been prevented? From crime stats to crime wardens, it's bad news all round for Gauteng residents. It's been three months since they've come to exist, but we don't really know if they're having an impact at all, which is huge. A vote mired in controversy. Why is government keeping quiet on the Zim elections? Another political party is launched. This time, Ace Mahashule is ready to, well, act. And another shout out to Gift of the Givers. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode of the Whole Week Wrap with Daily Maverick and Carte Blanche. I'm your host, Lizanne Janssen van Rensburg. And with us today is Daily Maverick journalist, Nonkululeko Njilo. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Good morning, Lizanne, and a very good morning to you and your listeners. Thank you for having me. So, I mean, let's get straight into our first story. Last week, an early morning fire at an abandoned but hijacked building in Johannesburg left over 70 people dead. You were on the ground on the day. A very tragic story, Lizanne. We went to the scene hours after we were made away of this fire that had broken in the early hours of Thursday morning. So on arrival, we were met by a number of dead bodies that are still being retrieved from the building. We were met by, you know, women crying uncontrollably because they had lost, you know, children, they had lost loved ones, relatives, they had lost husbands. It was really somber. You know, we had people who were really just looking and trying to find their relatives. They were trying to grapple with, is my relative one of these dead buildings or not. It was really quite sad. This five-story building, it's, it was housing more than 200 families and it was one of 57 hijacked buildings that had been identified by the Joburg Property Owners and Managers Association. So it's been on the city of Joburg's radar for years. How did we end up here? I mean, I remember we had a few fires. The warnings have been there. There have been reports on these buildings posing a serious risk. That's a really interesting question, Lizanne. Because this building had been used more than five years ago, it was listed to the Trouting Department of Social Development. So after the lease came to an end, it was basically abandoned. After that, it was hijacked. So at around 2017-2019, a Boris landlord was jailed for illegally collecting rent from tenants in that building. More than 140 undocumented foreign nationals were also arrested or moved from that building. So instead of the city then, you know, taking over this very building, they left it at that. And now we had 200 more families going back to illegally occupy this five-story building. So that's when it started, basically. So we have someone that most of these tenants know nothing about. They are legal men who collect the rent. And it's been going on for years. The, the city started blaming NGOs who were trying to prevent the city from evicting these families. The NGOs essentially called these illegal evictions, primarily because whenever an eviction is meant to happen, these families 
are supposed to be moved to new housing. And obviously, there is no additional housing for these families. So where do you move them to? Therefore, you can't evict them legally. Surely the, the responsibility ultimately lies with the city. Yeah, absolutely. So yesterday, I spoke to the MMC for Transport, Kenny Kumene, who briefly served as the executive mayor for one weekend sometime in May. So on top of his agenda at the time were to tackle hijacked and illegally occupied buildings. And there was a lot of backlash around that. And I've asked him, so what is the solution? Because surely you have the responsibility. And, you know, he said, or rather gave me some interesting solutions. So he says, we need to amend the law on evictions because as it is, it protects criminals and requires those who have been wronged to spend money on legal fees. So in this case, I'm assuming he says the city is being wronged because this mm. building belongs to the city. Yet those who illegally occupy these buildings you know, are being favored by the law. And he also says the city needs to look at mass deportation of illegal immigrants who are staying in these buildings, which is not entirely true, Lizanne, because we have South Africans also in these buildings. So he says we must arrest and must deport all of them. And only then we are likely to see a cleaner Johannesburg that is able to you know, use these buildings to generate some sort of revenue. Speaking of solutions, there's already been mention of yet another commission of inquiry. And I personally feel we don't need it because there have been many reports over the years on the decay of inner city Joburg. The information is already right there in front of them. The city now needs to take action. They need to find ways to prevent similar tragedies and finally acknowledge that essentially it has failed in its duties to properly maintain and manage city infrastructure. They can blame all they want. They need to start fixing Joburg inner city. This must really serve as a wake-up call to say we have failed. What can we do better? Where to from here? We have established commissions of inquiry before and they've not done much for us other than to take from taxpayers' monies. Um, so really, they should be looking at doing things differently. And part of doing things differently is not blaming civil society organizations. Instead, they should sit at a table and say, this is the situation we are confronted with. How do we resolve this you know, as humanly as possible in a way that does not put us on the wrong side of the law? Crime stats. It's become a phrase enveloped in misery and concern. And the first quarter figures for Gauteng are no different. At least the province has a newly formed crime prevention unit, right? You're so very wrong. Last week, Tuesday, Gauteng Provincial Police Commissioner Elias Mawela presented Gauteng's first quarter crime stats, and it showed an overall increase of 4% in crime across the province, with contact crimes showing an alarming increase. What's your take on these stats? We saw a slight decrease in the number of people that were killed compared to the same period in 2022. So I say slight because we are talking about a mere 0.1%. However, at Attempted murder went up by 7.2%. Robbery went up by almost 10%. So this means that we had more than 3,851 incidents in this period. What is slightly consoling, though, is that we also saw a decline in carjacking incidents by 12%, which is really good news for motorists. Mm. But then again, what I thought was of 
really great concern, shoplifting incidents that went up by more than 20%. So this is a staggering figure. And I say it is a concern because it speaks directly to the battle against inflation and poverty spike countrywide. Mm. That is certainly something to keep an eye on. And it's it's just indicative of the societal issues that we are currently facing. I also want to touch on law enforcement. Opposition parties have slammed Premier Panyaza Lesufi, saying that the province's law enforcement is under-resourced and funds are being spent aimlessly. This feeds into the crime stats conversation as well with the story that Daily Maverick recently did on the Gauteng Crime Wardens matter. You guys published a great expose which found that the 6,000 strong crime unit known as Amapanyaza was possibly set up and acting unlawfully. I mean, that was quite shocking to hear. Could you quickly walk us through this latest scandal? You recall that these wardens were recruited in an attempt to bolster crime prevention efforts around the province's 142 police stations. What this investigation has revealed is that, you know, two processes were possibly not followed in their appointments. These people were given more powers than they should have been. And there is insufficient oversight to prevent them from abuse of power and brutality, you know, a problem that is already rife in this country. Another issue that we saw with this piece was that the Amapanyas are fall under the Department of Community Safety in the province, which had its 2023-2024 budget increased significantly to more than $2.7 billion. So the Amapanyaza as an entity alone, we allocated more than $1.5 billion, which is scandalous if you think mm-hmm. about it, because a lot of departments in this province had their budgets cut significantly. This is a big deal since these 6,000 peace officers have been allowed to make arrests without a warrant. They've conducted searches and yet they're not legally deemed peace officers as per the Criminal Procedure Act. So they've already been claims of abuse of power by these wardens. So it seems like Panyaza and his team got everything wrong around this whole crime prevention entity. Absolutely. And if we are being honest, the, the process was quite rushed. The announcement was initially made in February that mm. there would be such a program. And these people were then trained in very short periods of time with no clear mandate on what they can do and cannot do. And I think this is why we are now seeing an overlap. Because they are arresting people, like you correctly said, yet they do not have such powers. And these are serious implications. I'm all for finding new and innovative ways to assist police in in battling crime because we know that they are under-resourced. At least just do it the right way and ensure that all the boxes have been ticked. Otherwise, it serves no purpose. It does more damage than anything else. And you end up with serious criminals in some cases or alleged criminals getting off scot-free just because due process was not followed. Initially, when they came to exist, we were told that they would sort of shadow police or work alongside them. But in reality, they are doing their own thing in some cases, which is quite problematic. And sometime last week, I did have a conversation with the police commissioner, Elias Mawela, saying it's been three months since they've come to exist, but we don't really know if they're having an impact at all, which is huge. You know, if Mm. taxpayers are forking 1.5 billion for these people to exist and three months later, we don't even know if they are having any impact at all. That is shocking. What what an admission. ZANU-PF leader Emerson Mnangagwa reigns victorious once again as the Zimbabwe elections come to a close. 
but several civil society and election monitoring bodies are crying foul, saying the run-up to the elections and the big day itself were rife with incidents of violence, intimidation and alleged vote rigging. So, why is SA government keeping mum? So on to our next story, and it's the Zim elections that recently came to a close. And as many unfortunately had anticipated, the process was far from democratic, with various claims of intimidation on the day. Many observers, including the SADC and the EU, said the vote didn't meet international standards for transparency and was conducted in a climate of fear. And despite all of this, the South African government praised the elections and congratulated President Emerson Mnangagwa on his win. Why is our government seemingly ignoring what everyone else is saying? You know, South Africa is a leader on the African continent and a defender of human rights. What we saw in Zimbabwe days leading up to the election and post the election is precisely that human rights violation. So what South Africa has said up until now is to note these findings. They're not saying anything, really. Mm. And something has been, you know, vehemently rejected by opposition parties in the country, most of which are saying or rather are demanding an independent review of the election, something they believe would sort of affirm South Africa's position or credibility in the global state. So why? There could be a number of reasons, you know, one being that South Africa and Zimbabwe are allies. You know, they've been allies for decades. Mm. A political analyst I spoke to said this is because of the pro-African ideology that the government has sort of adopted. I understand that Zimbabwe is an ally and therefore they must be supported in some way or form. But I mean, at what cost? Because it doesn't look good for democratic countries such as ourselves to just blindly support countries that are clearly going against our democratic principles. It doesn't look good at all. And I think this is why there's a lot of outrage among opposition parties, which, you know, has been saying, do something, say something, because this does not align to our principles as South Africa. There seems to be no appetite at all from our government. In fact, I've even tried to canvass the views of the ruling party, the ANC. And can I tell you, I have not received any joy in getting responses. They keep saying, no, we will make our position available as soon as we have met. Like they keep coming up with all sorts of excuses, which just makes matters worse. There's certainly no shortage of political parties in South Africa, with over 1,000 parties vying for your vote both nationally and regionally. So what's one more party in the grandest scheme of things? We have yet another political party, yay, <laughs> this time in the form of former ANC Secretary General Ace Mahashule's African Congress for Transformation, or ACT. It has labelled itself the People's Party and includes several former ANC members and a few very questionable individuals. I doubt there's room for more political parties, honestly speaking. Mm. And I say this because in the 2019 general elections, the Electoral Commission had more than 500 registered political parties. Of those, only 48 made it to the ballot paper, and ultimately only 13, one three, made it to Parliament. So we should be learning a thing or two there. The reality is that the man is popular in the free states. In fact, a bulk of his members are mostly from that province. So he may garner some support. My concern, though, is that the image of the party, as you said, when he launched it, seemed to be really centered around Mahashule, who has, you know, corruption charges hanging over his head. So what happens to this party then if he's convicted? Because really there's nothing attractive about it beyond him. At this point, we don't know yet whether they have indeed been registered 
registered with the Electoral Commission. But even if they are registered, do they even stand a chance of success regionally and nationally? I think when I listened to him launch the party, I thought he's not very clear in terms of the kind of people he wants to attract. I mean, he said something along the lines of this is a new political home for the homeless, for the betrayed and the fatigued. I mean, who's homeless? Who's betrayed? Who's fatigued? Those are just disgruntled members of the ANC like himself. It doesn't appear as if, you know, he's got a plan at a national level. And I got a sense that, you know, he intends to contest at provinces like Gauteng, Free State, Northern Cape, where he's been contacted by people or mostly disgruntled ANC members to join him. As you've just said, you know, it's very unclear what their policies are, but maybe we'll have a bit more clarity on that following their conference that I believe is planned for later this year. But for now, the party's promises are sounding like more of the same. We've heard it from many other parties before. It was almost like he took from the various manifestos of each party and just took the most popular lines and went with those for his launch. Absolutely. It did not inspire any confidence at all. It was not something we have never had before. And it was just really a typical move, considering that he's kept the country waiting for the longest of time following his expulsion from the ANC. It was just a matter of getting a sense of what he intends to offer, which was really nothing out of the ordinary. As we've come to expect from the gift of the givers, the aid organization once again raised its hand to assist those most in need. This time, they were one of the very first to provide much-needed support to the Joburg fire victims. We reflect on the amazing work they do. It's been a heavy show today, lots of politics. So I want us to just circle back to the Joburg fire and look at the amazing response from Gift of the Givers. They're our national heroes. They always show up. And they were on the scene mere hours after the fire broke out and ready to provide any assistance they could. I mean, these guys are just so inspiring. Whenever I see any kind of tragedy or a disaster, no matter how big or small, they're just there. It's quite inspiring, Lizan, because usually when there are these kinds of tragedies, we have people blaming one another, as we've seen with officials in the city and NGOs. But, you know, Gift of the Givers, they're always neutral. They're always genuinely for the people. And this is why I would have seen them respond to this tragedy hours after it happened. So it's quite motivating, I think, even for smaller organizations. And just to give our listeners perspective that they don't just go for the big things. I was also keeping an eye on the organization's social pages on the day of the fire. And I was just overwhelmed by the amount of work they were doing elsewhere. On this very same day, they also had teams assisting residents in Volverafir in Cape Town, which was hit by a mini tornado about two weeks ago. They were battling raging fires at another informal settlement in Cape Town and also providing mattresses to a fire-ravaged community in Durban. They're a relatively small organization, but they're doing so much. And it's not just about where the cameras are. They're literally everywhere else in these very small communities that you don't even read about or hear about. Absolutely. That's why I keep saying, you know, it's really commendable. Mm. 
Well, that brings today's whole week wrap to an end. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been lovely chatting to you. And I'm so happy to have yet another Daily Maverick voice on our show. And I hope we get to chat again very soon. I hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap. In case you missed any of our previous chats with Daily Maverick, you can find them all on Carte Blanche, the podcast, available on Spotify and all major podcasting platforms. <laughs>